Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's the Center from Reality Podcast, and uh, it's Monday. Monday, February 20th. If you were telling me we're almost through February, I wouldn't believe you, but we are, and I still don't believe it. I don't know what really else to say other than that, but it is President's Day. I guess I'm doing a podcast on President's Day. I'm doing it because I was supposed to do one on Friday, but I got busy and just couldn't couldn't get it out. So instead, I want to get it out today, even though it's a holiday. And it might be a little bit shorter episode today, but what I want to do is I want to talk about Ron DeSantis and how there are worries that his use of government to basically enact policies is a little bit troubling, and maybe it's a bit of an overreaction to what he views as woke problems in our society. Before that, I also want to get into some of my new revelations about fascism versus authoritarianism. Then I want to go into addressing how some people think the MAGA America First new GOP movement is kind of fascist. Then I want to talk about other thoughts about whether like people like Ron DeSantis are fascist. So there's going to be a lot of talk about authoritarianism and right-wing fascism and all that fun. But first, I do want to have a little bit of fun, actually. Well, I don't know if it's really fun. It's Part of me wants to laugh, part of me just wants to cry and like put my head under a pillow, but it's first off Don Lemon's little scandal, and then also the giant Fox News scandal that is probably not surprising to anyone, but Fox News is finally showing its true colors, and now there's actually the receipts, there's the proof, there's all that fun. So first off, I kind of call this an unequal tale of controversies or a tale of two unequal controversies. But you have both CNN and Fox being in a bit of a debacle. I think, I think it was on Friday when all of this broke. I'm going to start with the CNN one because it's a little bit less depressing. and It's just kind of insane. So, a little background. All of you guys know that Don Lemon used to be on at night. And now he has a morning show. And by the way, the morning show, I've actually only watched a few pieces of it. But it might be one of the worst morning shows I've ever seen in my life. And the ratings are abysmal. And it's called CNN This Morning. And it has Don Lemon, Poppy Harlow, and Caitlin Collins. If you just type it in on Google, which I did because I forgot Poppy Harlow, it's 2.9 out of 10 on IMDb. And 35% of the people that rated it liked the show. And this is on Google. This is on the internet. And... The irony is is that they wanted to bring these people on to make the show a little bit better and to get better ratings, but actually the old show before they brought Don Lemon on actually <laughs> actually is doing worse than the previous show where there were lesser names on it. And a little bit more background is that Don Lemon has, you know, gone from the night show where it was politics heavy. He always annoyed me to begin with, maybe that's why I've never watched the show, but this new one is kind of them, I don't know if they really have much of an identity because it's like half politics, half like Good Morning America, half the view. It, it, it makes no sense to me. And because they don't really know what they're trying to do, the viewers don't know what they do. And also, it's very clear that Caitlin Collins and Don Lemon do not like each other. He said things in the past about women's sports and why they don't get paid as much. And whether you agree or disagree with what he said, the way he says it, you can just see the other two women on the show wanting to punch him. I guess they just disdain each other. And if you're going to have a morning show, I feel like you kind of need the hosts to somewhat get along at least, which it's clear they don't. So fun stuff. But anyways, where we are now is that on Friday, (laughs) 
So a few days ago, they were talking about Nikki Haley, who announced, and basically they were talking about how Nikki Haley is running on being in her prime. She's a new generation. They need to not run. Like, basically Nikki Haley's whole thing right now is she's not 75. She's in her prime, and she's a new generation. And basically Don Lemon said in quotes here, Haley is not in her prime. A woman is in their prime in their 20s and 30s and maybe 40s. And let me pull this up. I always forget how old Nikki Haley is, but I think she's probably closer to... Yeah, she's 51. And so (laughs) in a very cringeworthy, sexist, just all-around bad statement, Don Lemon just basically says that, no, she's too old to be in her prime. And then you have to ask, what does he mean by in her prime? Because is that like childbearing age? Is that I, I don't even know and I'm not going to speculate. But either way, it was kind of just a gross comment. And you could see the, the other two hosts, Poppy Harlow and Caitlin Collins, kind of also look appalled. And yeah, Don Lemon got a decent amount of <laughs> criticism for it. And right, rightfully, rightfully so. Like CNN's chairman has called him out. Of course, all the right wing news is <laughs> excited about this story. Of course they are. And Don Lemon is not appearing. He is taking a little, in quotes, holiday, which is what happens when you misbehave. They make you sit out. It happened to Whoopi Goldberg on The View as well. And, I mean, maybe they should just reconsider this entire show. But the reason I bring this up is because I started this segment by saying this is a tale of two news agencies, Fox News and CNN. Don Lemon says something sexist and just offensive and disgusting. And he is, I mean, he has apologized to staff and he's making, he's he's pretty much having a timeout. So that's how CNN responds to a pretty, you know, bad but not extreme controversy. On the other hand, Fox News is really in the shit and I bet nothing will change. So that gets us into the Fox News part of this. So NPR reports, and I'm sure you guys have all heard about this more or less by now, but it reports in quotes here, and I'm going to read this whole little segment just because I think it's pretty good. It writes in quotes, Off the air, Fox News's network stars, producers, and executives expressed contempt for, these, for those same conspiracies, calling them mind-blowingly nuts, totally off the rails, and completely BS. And, and these are actually generous terms, by the way. And, of course, we're talking about the big lie and how they brought on a bunch of crazy people like Sidney Powell to talk about this stuff. And so people like Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity basically texted one another, basically saying all these claims about election fraud were insane They said it was not worth talking about. These people were nuts. Even Tucker Carlson was saying these things were nuts. But then they also denounced their colleagues in the same group messages, saying that they couldn't actually point these out on public television, or on on, on television publicly, sorry, because they didn't want to piss off their viewers, and also because Trump could ruin them, right? They didn't want to piss off Trump. And I think the calculation here was that Newsmax and OANN we're starting to take some of Fox News' viewers. And so people like Tucker Carlson were saying, yeah, these people are batshit crazy, but if we don't go down the batshit crazy conspiratorialism, then we're going to lose our main viewing base. And Ingram, for example, called Sidney Powell a bit nuts, but then she also had her on the show. Carlson, who 
<laughs> demanded evidence from Powell on the air, used a very vulgar term that I'm not going to use on the podcast to describe her, and even some of the other things we've seen. A top network programming executive wrote, according to NPR here, that he did not believe the shows of Carlson, Hannity, and Janine Pirro were credible sources of news. Yeah, no shit. Um, also, Maria Bartiromo, people talked about how she was crazy, didn't care. Lou Dobbs was probably the only one who actually got axed on this. And it just seems to me that Fox News was so afraid of losing their viewers who clearly were buying into all of these election lies that they decided to keep propagating them. And <laughs> the thing here is that this is kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Like, was it Fox News lying to their viewers so their viewers believed it? Or did their viewers believe it so Fox News had to keep lying to their viewers? You kind of wonder how this cycle works. And it was probably a little bit of both. But I guess we've all known this. And I guess I wasn't that surprised. Because, I mean, it was pretty clear to me from day one that these people just knew they had to do it. But the fact these texts are out there. And we have to remember, have to remember that this is all because of the Dominion lawsuit. Right? This is a vote-counting agency that has pretty much just been completely ruined by Fox News and other Republicans for all these claims. So they're suing Fox News for pretty much the wealth of a small nation. And will they win? I don't know, because it could be difficult to actually win this entire case. But at the same time, we've, we're, we're getting these texts because of this insane suit. And I, I guess without getting too much into the weeds here... I think Fox felt like they needed to do this because, re remember, they were the first one to call Arizona for Biden back in 2020. I remember watching it with some buddies. We had some drinks, and I do remember late into the night, Fox called it for Biden in Arizona. We have to remember that Arizona has become a cesspool of election fraud conspiracies. And I think about that time, a lot of viewers and a lot of Republicans said Fox News is not Trumpy enough. And so they went over to other networks and Fox got a lot of pushback from their viewers and they had to respond to that. And I think in a general larger scale, Fox has the same issue that the GOP as a political party has right now. Basically, it's afraid of angering its own base. It's afraid of its viewers and it's afraid of telling them the truth because it's created this reality. It's always mixed the lines between entertainment and fact and now it doesn't really want to pull the mask off and it can't and now there's competition and it's not going to be possible and of course this is bad for our democracy our struggling democracy because now we have people living in just completely different universes and like I said at the beginning of this is that Don Lemon for saying something stupid and sexist is more likely to get fired for his comments than Fox News is to get any retribution or punishment for any of this scandal. At least that's what I think. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But it's kind of insane. And, you know, if you zoom out even more, Fox News can't admit here that it lied to its viewers, right? If you go on Fox News, there's not a lot of information about this story, right? Tucker Carlson's still asking questions about the election, even though he clearly has no questions about the election. And they can't admit that they lied to their viewers, because if the organization does, it's just admitting that, it's th that it thinks its viewers are too dumb to understand the truth, and it backfires. It's a real mess. And so I think Adam Skewer says it best. He wrote, he wrote this article in The Atlantic, and he said in quotes here, 
Even if Fox News ultimately loses the Dominion lawsuit, I would not expect its audience to abandon it. After all, the network remains willing to tell them what they know to be true, even if it isn't. And then, I, I don't know. I don't know what you do here, because Fox News has not been news for a long time. Whenever I turn it on, it's not news. I don't learn anything. I'm just being told that the Democrats are bad, the Biden administration's bad, and all these conspiracies. And it was, it was Tom Nichols on The Bulwark. Uh, Tom Nichols is always great, more of a neoconservative, center-right and he said, Fox News has really kind of delved into this tabloid type of information cycle where it's not even the fact that it does conspiracies, but it also just does tabloid level information on its shows. Like Tucker Carlson was talking about the first man, or sorry, the second gentleman, and uh, Jill Biden having an affair. No information on that. He just wanted to speculate. Like these are stories you see in like People magazine, and Fox News is doing that on the air at night. And so, in my opinion, we don't want government deciding what is news and what is not because it's a slippery slope. It definitely is. Like, we don't want to say Fox News can't be in the press, press room during a briefing or whatnot. Like, you don't want to go down that. You really don't want to go down that road. But at the same time, I do wish more people just understood that Fox is not news anymore. And then I, the last thing I'll say on this, too, is that this does show me a bigger issue is that a lot of written and news media on TV at night, everything I think from the New York Times to Fox News does suffer from somewhat of a similar problem. They've gone to this subscriber-based model, and I don't think it's good for actually getting transparent information anymore. It's better at just finding a niche of people, niche of people that are going to watch it, and just keep getting them to come back. And when you do that, it kind of isolates the information you're sending to them. You're, you're telling them the story you want them to know. Of course, it's worse on the right, but it does happen in publications like the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, whatever it may be. And it's because when you only have a small section of the population who want to know one thing or have interests or dynamics in their life, then you're going to send that information to them. And I don't think that's a good way to have information. So... I don't know. We'll have to see how this goes, but I'm sure everyone will forget about it by the end of the week. Um, Don Lemon, I hope you have a good vacation. I hope that morning show gets axed. Probably won't. And I don't think Tucker Carlson, for example, or Laura Ingraham, as David Pakman calls her, is going to have any ramifications. So moving on, the next part of this podcast is going to be a little bit more theory, politics, and history linked. Because I, I want to go into some of my more some of my newer, I guess, revelations and thoughts on fascism. And then I'm going to kind of expand it, I guess, to what's happening in the United States and whether we could actually say that's that. But because there was a Guardian article last week that kind of sparked this, where it was talking about how what the GOP is doing is fascist. And so I kind of had some thoughts on that I wanted to share because I'm reading a couple books on fascism right now. But the main one I'm going to use is The Anatomy of Fascism that I finished, and it's by Robert O. Paxton. I believe it came out in the early 2000s, and the things he describes in it, it's kind of troubling how accurate he is compared to how things are going now. But what I would start by saying is that fascism and authoritarianism are not the same, right? And he seems to make an interesting point in this book is that it seems like fascism as we've de as he defines it and is how I think it is accurately defined, really only exists in places that had a democracy or a republic before it. Like, it seems to 
prosper in a dysfunctional or failing democracy. So even though you see authoritarianism and dictatorships around the world, they're not particularly the same as fascism. And anyways, I'm going to get into that in a little bit, but I just wanted to say that off the top. But I also want to say that I think, I think a lot of people assume that fascism and communism are opposites, that communism seems to think that the main failure of our society is the class divide and the exploit, exploitation of labor caused by capitalism and the stratification of society. I think the people that would think that would also think that fascism, for example, is hyper-capitalist, that it's capitalism on steroids or emergency capitalism, as Robert, Robert Paxton discusses at times. I don't think that's completely true. I think, and I've talked about this a little bit before, is that fascism and communism are really just the inverse of one another. They're different sides of the same coin. Because while socialism sees the exploitation of labor as the issue and wealth creating a a divided society and inequality growing, fascists are okay with capitalism, especially the corporate side of capitalism and the management of capitalism, but they don't like the excess or the individualism or the individual choices that come with it. Both are against excess and wealth and just the insanity and degradation of society. I think fascism, though, is more concerned about the moral bankruptcy of capitalism, but they're still fine with the wealth that is generated, and they're fine with the exploitation to get it. They're fine with that. And again, when you see these trends throughout, like Peronist Argentina, which some would say is fascist, or Nazi Germany, or fascist Italy under Mussolini. Fascism's pretty corporatist. But I do not think that really goes against the other things, because what I mean here is that corporatism separates capitalism from the individual. It's this idealized form that many individuals take, like individual capitalism, sorry, is the, the idealized form that many individuals take to be true. But... Fascism is like this emergency form of capitalism that came out of a time of rot, decadence, and democratic decay. And I think that is, again, another attempt at finding a solution for decline that is inverse to communism. But it's okay with the brutality, but it's also okay with wealth generation. It's also okay with a class-stratified society, while communism's not. So the, the reason why is they're not, they're not opposites, because they both are against decadence, and they both want to use state power to control resources— it's just one thinks capitalism's the issue, and one, one doesn't like the decadence of it. Anyways, um, as I've been reading these books, there's a few other insights I did want to share real quick. And, of course, the reason I like to do this is because I think we must know what these type of movements are so we learn, but we also need to know what they're not. Because I think times are changing around us once again, and sometimes people get confused. And I get confused, too, because... I'll admit that even, even though I do all this reading on fascism, you learn new things and you learn different aspects of how to define these different regimes around the world. You know, you have hybrid regimes, authoritarian regimes, fascist regimes, military dictatorships, socialist regimes, democratic socialism. I mean, there's so many things, but what I want to talk about is how hybrid regimes, authoritarian regimes, military dictatorships, and fascism are not the same. For example... Even though Franco was helped by fascists like Mussolini and Hitler, he was less of a fascist and more of just an authoritarian that wanted to control his own society. I think one distinction that can be made is that fascism kind of requires the constant expansion of territory, 
And this is something that is kind of a through line with the few fascist regimes we've seen in history. Usually this expansion is for its master race or people. You want more land for this race to prosper. And usually it's a racist type of situation. But if you think about, you know, Mussolini, he wanted to bring Italy back to its imperial Roman glory. Hitler wanted to expand land for two reasons. A, he wanted to create space for the master German race. And B, he wanted to have more locations to put the Jewish people because originally that was the plan, was to take them out of the German land and put them somewhere else. And, of course, things changed, and that was not what happened, but that was, that was the idea of expansion for the Nazis. Even, um, even Sliban Milosevic in Yugoslavia, who was a Serb, he found that he could use grievance to his advantage. He wanted to also create and expand more land for the ethnic Serbians. After the fall of communism, that was his answer. He also did this while kicking out Croats and Bosnians as well. One could even entertain the idea that Putin is more on this side, right? He's trying to create this concept of a Russian identity that's long lost to seize land. And he wants to bring back this greater Russia, this greater Soviet Union. And he wants to expand to do this. And this doesn't mean everyone, right? He doesn't want like the, the Zelensky types or, the, or these other groups inside of the country. He wants a specific Russian identity. And I think this is also one of the reasons why these fascist movements struggle in the long run, because they keep needing more to eat, more to chew up and spit out. And this is their key, key feature of constant expansion, and it's difficult to constantly expand, especially in a global world, right? And going then in the other direction, contrarily to these fascist regimes, military dictatorships are... I think more about the propaganda, the saber-rattling and looking tough, that yeah, they have parades, yeah, they have a military that looks strong and they wear uniforms, but they use these military parades and shows of force as kind of a symbol of power and control. A fascist regime usually goes after like an ethnic group or there's an other that, that they generalize, like to Hitler, the communists and Jews were practically the same thing and he hated both of them, same with the Romas. But in a military dictatorship, usually you just silence opposition, but it's not standardized to a single group. And also expansion is not the goal. And I would even argue that isolationism and neutrality are also more common in just generally authoritarian or military dictatorship type of situations. Like these regimes want to maintain power, not expand it. I always think about Portugal under, under the Salazar re regime or dictatorship or even to an extent Franco, once he was Generalissimo, or the dictator of Spain. It, again, going full circle, it seems to me that fascism is more of an organic transition that comes from a dysfunctional democracy, where an authoritarian government is more mechanical. Now, they're not mutually exclusive, but it just seems to be the case in a lot of these examples. Ultimately, I want to discuss a few other things, though, moving on that kind of take us to where I think you could see some modern whispers of fascism, though I'll get into why maybe it's different. I think it was Orwell who discussed that a modern version of fascism would be different, and leaders or demagogues or fascists would use national symbols to remind a certain generation, but in more moderated and clandestine terms and in a clandestine sense. This is the idea that the public in modern times is less inoculated against, you know, for example, what we saw in World War II involving fascism. 
they're not inoculated against the new coded language of modern fascism, the dog whistles, the things that some will say, oh, that's not fascist, they're just speaking the truth. Fascism, if it still exists, would look different today. Robert Paxton, who was, again, way ahead of his time, discusses how kind of coded or moderated fascism would be, oh, our country looks different now. Xenophobic rhetoric, toxic national pride, such as like, oh, that group isn't, doesn't like our country. Anti-globalist rhetoric, calling one group globalists. He talks about hesitance toward elites. Discussion about uh, European heritage or even our bad sides of European heritage. These are a few examples he has. Crowding around a flag or a symbol and pointing out other groups that aren't part of that. And this is alarming to me because we hear things like like some of these. I mean, obviously they're not the same things, but they kind of go with exactly what uh, uh, Paxton was talking about. For example the white replacement theory, right? The idea that immigrants are coming to change way, the way the country looks. Anti-globalist rhetoric. Fears of a changing American society. I'll never forget when Laura Ingram was talking about how a lot of Americans don't like how the country looks and they're not comfortable with it. These are coming from everyone from like Marjorie Taylor Greene to Elise Stefanik to Laura Ingram. And these things are eerily similar to what Paxton describes as kind of a moderated form of fascism that could creep into society and start being adopted by, by groups that are not actually fascist but use it. And to go into that more, Paxton writes in this book that modern fascists basically try to come to power by moderating their extreme views and they only differ from like the center-right because there are people that they align with that, that Paxton describes as awkward friends and radical people and dangerous ideas, but they're moderated, and because these crazy people and ideas are with groups that are seen as moderate, it kind of downplays them. And we can, we can think of some of this right now in the GOP, right? The people that have aligned with, like, Nick Fuentes or spoken at these alt-right events, the Paul Gosarts, for example, Kanye West, even. Like, these are figures that say awful things, but then they're around people with credibility. Like, one would not see... Mitt Romney with Nick Fuentes, but the new GOP, like the Marjorie Taylor Greene, speak at events that he's also at, and even Kevin McCarthy can't completely just say it's all bad. Also, the current leader, Donald Trump of the party, is willing to dine with him and Kanye West. That's what, that's what you call the moderating of fascism and extremism, when you, when you have basically like credible figures around nutbags. I think that is what Paxton is really getting into when he talks about this. And Paxton does a lot of talking about the second stage of fascism in which the movement becomes intertwined. And also then the, I guess you could say, fascists become closest to power when the conservatives or the right start borrowing some of their rhetoric. And I think we are seeing that as well. And again, remember, this book came out almost two decades ago. Maybe, maybe 15 years ago is a better way to put it. Anyways, going off of this, though, I don't think it's a secret to any of you that the kind of post-Trump, MAGA, America First, reactionary GOP, the Lauren Boberts and the Paul Gosarts and whoever else, this party has started changing its stances on such things 
as what it means for private companies to express free speech. It's also claimed that people on the left do not love America. They even hate America. They're communists, which is a common thing that authoritarians, sometimes fascists, do, is they paint all of one side as a communist. We are seeing the party look to ban certain books in primary and secondary education, claiming these texts are un-American. Ron DeSantis is even at war with the college board over AP classes, and he said something to the effect of maybe the college board doesn't belong in Florida. Like, look, I think a lot of this critical race or, I mean, I guess maybe the 1619 project is a little bit insane and the jury's still out on whether Hannah Nicole Jones is completely right. But if you're a high school kid who's really smart and wants to take an AP class and learn alternative narratives and learn about the slave experience or whatever not, you should be allowed to. Ron DeSantis shouldn't overreact to his fears of wokeism by not allowing kids to learn anything else. He also doesn't have the right to do all these attacks on Disney either, in my opinion. And going off of this, Paxton Becker in the early 2000s noted that if America was to have a fascism, the modern fascists in the U.S. would turn to the American flag. And they would turn the American flag against the full population and make it somewhat of a litmus test of allegiance against some sworn internal enemy. He also discusses how this movement could also maybe attack the First Amendment, the separation of church and state, basically attack the secular nature of our society. He also says maybe they would choose who could own firearms, which hasn't happened yet, but or ever potentially. But yes, he gets into that. And I'll not get into the rise today of Christian nationalism and all these comments that many Republicans, including Lauren Boebert, for example, have made about how this is a Christian nation, church and state separation doesn't exist, all that jazz. But that's definitely a part of kind of a religious fascism, for sure. But what I did want to stay on is kind of this idea of, like, if you disagree with the flag or you disagree with our history or the patriotism of it, that you're not American. And also how if a company says something, then they could be banned. The the First Amendment stuff. And... Because I think the new right in the U.S. is dancing a bit too close to fascism on this, like banning texts they disagree with, condemning people they disagree with, and using state power to stop private companies from doing things that the state disagrees with. And I was reading an article in the Reno Gazette, I believe, and it was asking, is Ron DeSantis fascist? And my first instinct is no. And I still think that. I don't think he's fascist. I think he's maybe authoritarian a bit, or he has those tendencies. But I think he's just a small man with a big ego who's just seeing what he can get away with. That's my theory. But that same day, I remember I heard several podcast hosts and the Guardian article I referenced earlier mentioning how the new GOP has fascist tendencies. What they're doing with banning of literature, classes in schools, all that is kind of dancing on fascism, attacks on free speech, attacking corporations if they speak out in the wrong way, all that stuff. And again, I don't know if this is truly fascist. (coughs) Excuse me. I don't know if this is more of a right-wing populism or a far-right fascism, but it's something different. And today I read about how conservatives are concerned about how Ron DeSantis is overreacting to woke issues. And his reaction and his use of state power against perceived wokeism is almost going too far in the other direction. And this, to me, does seem like there's echoes of at least something troubling. Because while DeSantis claims to be a small government conservative, he was part of the Freedom Caucus, and he always brags about how uh, Florida is so free, he's using state power 
and a lot of it, a lot of discretion with state power, to do things that seem contradictory to small government. And one of the articles, this is a CNN one, writes that, as Florida state lawmakers met earlier this month to hand DeSantis new authority over Disney World, punishment for the company's opposition to a measure restricting certain uh, classroom instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity, Republican Chris Sununu of New Hampshire took a shot at the power grab. Sununu said, I'm a principal, free-marketed conservative who is also weighing a bid for president. For others out there that think that the government should be penalizing your business because they disagree with you politically, that isn't very conservative. Then there's also a guy for FIRE, which is, elite, which is kind of a free speech advocate in, in Florida, and he said, you cannot censor your way to freedom of expression. You cannot trade one orthodoxy for another. What we've seen recently in Florida is a troubling willingness to do just that. And the article just goes on to talk about how a lot of more moderate conservative groups are worried that what DeSantis is doing is like basically a perceived fear of anything being woke. So he's like putting down an iron fist on it. And that is troubling. And while I don't think DeSantis personally is a fascist, he has authoritarian tendencies. And this is not good because it's also mixing with actual far-right rhetoric in his party that does seem fascist adjacent. Like the stuff the Christian nationalism is saying, the stuff Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, those are people that, that trouble me. Especially when you have Marjorie Taylor Greene being associated with Nick Fuentes. And the party is normalizing extremist views that are dog whistles to many of the ideologies that led to fascism in the 20th century. And I just worry that DeSantis is giving others some sort of idea of how to use state power to punish the other side. That's why I think true free speech absolutists, which I pretty much am, would say either side should never try to ban these things because if you get an opportunist, you're basically paving your road to hell. And while he not be an authoritarian or a fascist, he's showing others in the party how to do it. So on that light note, we will end today. Uh, happy President's Weekend. Episode went longer than I was expecting, but I hope everyone's well, and I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Take care. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, all that jazz. Yeah, yeah, bye.